In a worship service many years ago, the congregation together reenacted the imagined moment in the biblical story when Mary and Joseph were told by the innkeeper that there was no room at the inn. To do this, the congregation formed two lines facing opposite directions so that as we passed, we passed each other as we walked. The one line asked each person that they passed, is there room for me in the inn? To which those in the other line responded, no, there is no room for you here. The exchange was repeated with each person that they passed. Everyone knew what the question was and what the answer was, so it seemed like a silly exercise. Yet reenacting this exchange brought the feeling of the words to life. Even though I knew the answer was no to my request, I felt the rejection each time it happened, and it didn't get easier. At some point, the two lines switched roles so that the rejector then became the rejected and vice versa. Then I had to look into familiar faces of people that I care and respect and tell them, no, there is no room for you here. The discomfort was palpable among the congregants. Some managed their feelings of discomfort by deciding not to switch roles and just keeping the one that they felt was least difficult. Others used humor to mask, or they kept their eyes focused on the floor. I began to tear up, and at one point, I tried to soften the blow with a hug. We imagined together how difficult it likely had been to not be welcomed when seeking shelter and about to give birth. We also imagined how difficult it may have been for the innkeeper to say, no, there's no room here. Saying no is challenging. Saying no to those we care about even more so. Sometimes, Saying no or refusing to help is not the most loving decision. Making a loving decision, however, does not mean always saying yes. A loving decision can mean saying no, even though it may be difficult to do so. And receiving no, though painful, may be exactly what's needed. Making a loving decision. There have been times in my life where decisions seem to just flow easily. Faced with a choice, I know intuitively which one among the many choices to make. I feel confident in my ability to make decisions and I'm satisfied with the consequences of those choices. I don't second guess the decision or regret my choice afterwards. Those are nice times, huh? <laughs> there have also been times where making any decision seems 
monumentally difficult. Not just the large life decisions, also the small, seemingly inconsequential ones are baffling, like what to wear or what to eat. We are faced with so many choices every day. Researchers at Cornell University estimate that we make 226.7 decisions every day on food alone. As your level of responsibility increases, so does the multitude of choices you have to make. It's estimated that the average adult makes about 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day. Each decision, of course, carries certain consequences with it that are both good and bad. 35,000 decisions. In other words, we're making decisions even on those days when we think we can't decide. When many decisions we make don't fully enter our conscious awareness. We make them on a sort of autopilot. About 10 years ago, I learned about how damaging using the word but is in communication. When used in a sentence, it negates everything that has come before the word. So for example, I like you, but you did a good job on that project, but. Emphasis on place is placed on what comes after the but and basically erases everything that was said before it. Further, the use of this word also can cause the other person to become defensive. Instead of being able to receive the sentence, you know, the statement, before the but, they became invested in defending the statement. You did that project well, but causes the, may cause the listener to then have to defend why they really did do a good job. On the other hand, simply stating you did the project well allows the statement to stand and for the listener to feel the praise. Another sentence may, later on may be, perhaps we could keep it to budget next time. <laughs> After learning about the damage this word can cause, I committed to removing it from my vocabulary. What that means in practice is that I became consciously aware of each time I chose, I was, that word came to mind. In both writing and speaking, when but came to mind, I asked myself, do you really want to negate everything that came before the but? Sometimes the answer was yes. Overwhelmingly though, the answer was no. What came before the but was important to communicate. And so I made a different decision. A brief pause to consider each time I started to use that word, moved it from the autopilot decision into making a conscious choice. Over time, the pause became more automatic. It comes in its place. Often a period, just letting the sentence stand on its own. Other times, but is replaced with and, because more than one thing can be true at the same time, both and. In the beginning, making this change um, from automatically using but to using 
both and was really clunky. In talking with others, just as I was about to say but, I heard it in my head, you know, paused really quickly, made the change, but I would overly emphasize and in its place. It was, it's been so nice catching up with you over coffee and I need to get back to work soon. Over time, this smoothed out. I could feel the change in how I thought and conveyed information and how the conversation with others was enhanced. Making a loving decision. There are many decision-making styles, methods, and helpful tools available to choose from. You know many of them. Weighing pros and cons, measuring urgency and, and importance, assessing how the choice aligns with your values and goals, and so forth. I wonder, what would it look like if, we, if the measure we used to make a decision was love? If we measured each choice by which of the alternatives was the most loving choice? I have to admit that I was skeptical of the centering of love in the first draft of the Article 2 uh, Study Commission's proposal. I've seen a whole lot of non-loving behavior among congregants and from UUs toward the wider world. I wasn't sure that we could say that love was the thing that held us together. Over time, as I contemplated what does hold us together, and with the latest revision to Article 2, I've come to a place of curiosity. What if love did guide us? What would it look like? Depending on the translation, the word love appears in the Bible between 300 and 500 times. Although love is cited in Christian scripture, the charge to the Article II Study Commission points to a study that found UUs ranked loving as an instrumental value and mature love as a terminal value more highly than did respondents from other groups, the religious and the non-religious. Love is a value important to Unitarian Universalists. Often love is thought of as just a feeling, something that pass is passively received that we have little to no control over. Even the definitions of love primarily focus on what one feels. To feel something, however, is a verb. In other words, active, as is love. To love is active and relational. It brings us into deeper relationship with ourselves, with others, with the universe, with the mystery of life. A powerful action. When operating from a place of love, we make decisions that best support our own well-being and that of the world. To love is active, a practice, something that we engage with and in. When making choices, 
asking myself what is the most loving decision I can make produces a very different response from asking myself what should I do. How many times have you heard yourself ask, say, what should I do? This query seems to assume that there's a right choice and a necessarily wrong choice. It also removes quite a bit of both agency and creativity. It's as if there were someone over us telling us what to do and how to do it. Asking should is constricting and confining. The inner dictator telling us that we should be doing something. On the other hand, asking what is the most loving decision I can make in this situation is opening. It frees us to consider alternatives, to think creatively about choices, about solutions, to make decisions in love that are beneficial to ourselves and to others. Making a decision from a place of love requires us, it would necessitate saying no to some requests. A loving decision values self and others. So many of us continually expect more and more of ourselves. Saying yes repeatedly to the point of burnout, constantly people-pleasing, are not based in loving decisions. A loving decision requires that your own well-being be a part of the decision process and sees the other in the relationship as also able to make loving decisions. Making loving decisions is leading by example, and then the benefits ripple outward. Engaging love as a practice, making decisions from a place of love is freeing and can help to change the world. Perhaps, that is the love that the Article II Study Commission envisioned when they wrote, the purpose of the Unitarian Universalist Association is to actively engage its members in the transformation of the world through liberating love. Liberating love, the love that frees. Making the most loving decision is definitely not always the easiest choice. Assessing choices by love will not always make a choice clearer. Perhaps this statement from the commission will assist us. They state, love is the power that holds us together and is at the center of our shared values. We are accountable to one another for doing the work of living our shared values through the spiritual discipline of love. Inseparable from one another, these shared values are interdependence, pluralism, justice, transformation, generosity, and equity. Surely, these values can help guide us in making loving decisions. When the UU Welcoming Congregation Program was first developed in the 1990s, it was groundbreaking work. 
congregations around the country began to look at the ways they were and were not welcoming to the LGBTQIA communi communities. Grappling with issues of gender and sexual identity and examining how the congregations presented themselves to the world and how they were in the world. This was challenging work and caused vast amounts of discomfort and sometimes even conflict. Obtaining and maintaining the welcoming congregation designation is love in action. Less than 10 years ago, I worked with a congregation to become a welcoming congregation for the very first time. There were members of the congregation who threatened to leave if we continued to follow, to pursue that designation. They did not want to be in a gay church. The congregation held a town hall to provide opportunity for members to voice their concerns and to also share information with the congregation. Over the next couple of years, they completed the work to obtain the welcoming congregation designation. Some members did resign. The congregation made and continues to make a loving decision to ensure a welcoming presence and action in the world that supports LGBTQIA communities. The Welcoming Congregation program is one small example of the ways that Unitarian Universalists center love, that love is put into action, that congregations make and continue to make loving decisions. There are many, many more examples of both individual and community decision and actions made from love that are liberating and transforming within Unitarian Universalism. When I returned to my seat after that experience I shared with you about there not being room in the inn, I felt pretty defeated. I turned to my husband and asked, is there room for me in the inn? And he responded, baby, there's always room for you. <laughs> Those simple words washed over my soul and I felt restored. Too many people regularly hear, both metaphorically and in actuality, that there is no room for you here. Where once I was skeptical, I've now come to see the truth of the Commission's statement that love is the power that holds us together. Previously, I believed that that statement was too passive, seeing love as active as actions we take, I'm beginning to hear the draft of Article 2 as a call to respond, to continue to find new ways to respond to love in action. The world certainly needs love. We each need love. Liberating, transforming, spiritually grounded love. May it be so.